Hi, welcome back to Campus Under the Sun. It's your host, Titwan, for CKUT 90.3 FM. In this episode, I will discuss the history, structure, and possible future of the summer term. When I first started doing my research about the summer term, specifically at McGill, I stumbled upon the article McGill Needs a Complete Summer Term by Karim Abu Ali, published on February 7, 2023, in the McGill Tribune, recently renamed to simply The Tribune. And it's a commentary opinion piece advocating for a complete summer term at McGill instead of three one-month-long sessions, presenting this system as an outdated legacy of a time where students were necessary for agricultural jobs over the summer. It quickly goes over reasons why the summer term still looks like this, despite how much the condition have changed today. And so here, I'm also going to explore similar themes and arguments and question the structure of the summer term. And for this part, I will specifically address the history and economics of the summer term in North America generally. And in the next episode, we'll focus on McGill more specifically. So first, let's talk about the history of the summer term, or rather, the history of the summer break. And for that, I'm primarily using the article The History of School and Summer Vacation by James Patterson, published in 2012. Before I go any further, I must address the widespread narrative that the current summer break we know and enjoy does result from rural needs. That is simply not the case. Even before the industrialization of agriculture, students were not a necessary workforce during the summer, simply because there was not that much of a need for an important agrarian workforce during the summer, considering that crops were mainly planted in the spring and harvested in the fall. Anyway, even if this rationale made sense, the current needs of the agriculture industry do not rely on students, thus excluding agriculture as a reason for keeping the summer break the way it is now. So we can wonder what is the explanation, or at least a better one, for the summer break. Well, quite simply, the summer, especially in the city, can be very hot. That is not going to shock anyone, especially in the context of the climate crisis we're living in. And with every summer feeling hotter than the previous one. So back then, at a time when AC was not as widespread as it is today, the summer term, the summer time, really, was just not a good time to study, leading to an important uh, um, student absenteeism due to just awful studying and living condition in general. Not only can classrooms be hot, but cities in general can be oppressive and stuffy during the summer, especially if it's just concrete and steel everywhere. Thus, the last place you want to be in is a badly ventilated classroom with 40 or more students, all distracted and struggling to focus because of the oppressive heat. Hence, because it was too hot, students were escaping the cities and universities if they could. Thus, we can say that 
the absenteeism and its climate cause did drive the current structure of the summer break that we know because it forced schools and universities and school districts and whoever's making the decision to simply free their students during that time. So it was not so much for agrarian needs, but rather for hot and unhealthy summer month that the summer break was established with epidemics and truancy as contributing factors. Now that we've broadly established the historical origin of the long summer break, we're going to look at the current concerns and dynamic that surround and put pressure on and for that summer break. I want to say that in the context of increasing standards of living, spending power and social advancement such as paid vacation days, and before that, the improvement and increase of transportation, the long summer break became an established tradition in the fabric of North American culture. Thus, I want to argue that it is partly tradition and capitalist interest that uphold that long summer break for students. Before going further into that point though, I want to clarify that I'm not against the summer break. I just want to highlight and question some of the driving forces behind it. I mean, I'm French after all, I do love my vacations. But back to the driving forces of the summer break. Tourism is a huge industry. I don't want to bother you too much with numbers, so I will just say that um, tourism is a major employer and it accounts for 5% of employment in OECD countries. And in this industry, students are an important component, serving both as clients and workers. The travel market is also a huge business, and students do travel. Even if they might try to save money, they still spend money to travel, go out, and enjoy what is described as one part of the college experience. That is to say, partying, spring break, socializing, etc., and in this capitalist society, the fact that students are an important market share is non-neglectable, and it is not neglected. Additionally, even if students work less now, they still represent an important and necessary part of the workforce over the summer, notably in the service industry when other people are either still working or enjoying their well-earned vacation. To talk some more about a historical aspect of student travel, the idea that students need to or should travel to perfectly well-rounded education has been pushed on students for quite a while. The primary example is the so-called grand tour that bourgeois European men would do from, from the 17th century to the early 19th century. Traveling around Europe and visiting classical antique landmarks became a rite of passage for aristocratic British men which then expanded to other European nations, particularly northern ones, but also to the US. And this tradition emerged at the same time as globalization and capitalism grew, sparking the interest of businessmen like Thomas Cook, who saw in it an opportunity to sell pre-made tours with transportation and accommodation, etc., already included in one package deal, Thus, sure, the Grand Tour, like this type of traveling, was presented as a way to learn about other past cultures 
and form well-rounded, educated young men. Still, it was a way for these people to flex their wealth and privilege, considering that the focus of learning was not on regional culture and explore the world or, I mean, Europe for that matter, but it was really focused on antiquity and the Renaissance. Okay, I know this was quite a stretch from the current student travel experience, but I think it is important to acknowledge the legacy of what we're working with today. And I have to say that because transportation was not what it is today, this grand tour was not the expedition of a summer break, but could last a few months and even years. But in the collective mind, I would argue that this was the origin of stressing travel as an important and formatting experience for young people. And it also set Europe as a place of interest worth visiting for its cultural legacy, which remains today. As I said before, this tour also gained interest in the US. And I'm sorry, y'all, I'm a literature student after all. I have to mention it. Mark Twain even satirized the undertaking of such a tour by American in his 1967 novel, Innocence Abroad. But back to our main subject, students. Well, still today, traveling is encouraged and expected for students. Traveling the world, experiencing new cultures, etc. is seen as a necessary experience for university students because it will inspire them and open their eyes to things they cannot learn in the classroom. So the summer break is one opportunity to do that and to accomplish that, whether it is with the university by taking a course abroad or just traveling by yourself or with friends. But uh, um, on a more anecdotal note, I know, and I guess you must know too, at least a few students who are using their summer break to travel around Europe because it still has this cultural and scenic appeal but it's also fun and most of the time they're visiting several cities, maybe even a few countries, which is clearly reminiscent of the Grand Tour. In this society and economy though, I can't pretend that there is no money-related interest in student traveling. As I mentioned earlier, students are actors in the travel and vacation industry as workers and clients. To talk about students' traveling habits, I will be using the article Understanding Differences in Tourist Motivation Between Domestic and International Travel, The University Student Market by Kyung Kim. It's a bit old as it is from 2007, but you know what? Let's pretend and hope that the trends she observed then continue today, which um, made sense when I read the article. Um, yeah. So first, um, she notes that the number of traveling students and youth in general has been steadily increasing over the last decade, thus forming an important part of the travel market and contributing to its revenue. And I have to mention it, students' motivation to travel has been identified as sun, surf, and fun. It's giving early 2000s which makes sense uh, since it's from 2007, but I love it. And we're talking about students, so party reputation was also identified 
as an important factor in selecting a destination. And that's mostly for travel abroad and for travel internally, like regionally within the country. It was mostly the reason was mostly identified as family related. So overall, the study found that 84% of students were planning a trip from a day trip to more than two weeks. About 24% responded that they sought a way to escape the ordinary, the job or school. And about 12% responded they wanted to travel for the education aspect of it, such as visiting a new destination and learning something new. And then there was a bunch of other smaller reasons. Thus, um, to sum things up about this article, Elm said that students are indeed an important part of the travel market, making time out of school, including the summer break, necessary for such travel to happen. So it's easy to imagine that lobbies would rise to protect that market if the summer break was to change drastically, if there was a sudden interest in putting students back to school over the summer because it's beneficial to them and to their education. And now to deal with the other side of students' involvement in the vacation industry, I'm looking at the article, Summer School is the New Summer Job, Why Fewer Teens Are Working and Why It Matters, written by David Lowingberg and published in Education Next in the summer of 2020. Basically, this feature presents that fewer teens, here we're specifically talking Americans 16 to 19 years old, so not necessarily university students, work a job less than they used to during the summer before. There were 64% to work in 1998 and only 40% in 2018. Instead of working, teens are more likely to be enrolled in school during the summer, have an unpaid internship, or participate in other education-related activities. So the highlighted reason for such a trend of less students' employment over the summer specifically are that they are instead staying in school, that they cannot find a job, and that there are fewer opportunities for them with the higher minimum wage and the competition of foreign-born worker putting them at the bottom of the recruiting pool. I don't have any more answer still. I'm very curious about the current inflation's role in the student's decision to get a minimum wage job if they can provide for themselves in another way, such as with a scholarship, their parents, or, or a loan. And so would they consider that getting another type of summer experience, such as traveling, doing an internship, volunteering, or focusing on personal project? is a better investment of their time than trying to compete for a minimum wage job in a difficult job market. I'm not an economist. I don't do field studies either. So this is just a personal interrogation. Well, I think we're getting to the end of what I had to say about a history and a broad economic interest behind the summer term. To quickly conclude, I will tie what I just developed to my initial interrogation. What is the future of the summer term? To begin to answer this question, let's look at the historical reasons 
for such a long summer break. We can quickly point out the hot and stuffy weather as inappropriate for good teaching and learning, which led school to let the student free during that time of the year instead. And by force of habit, this break is now institutionalized and completely part of the culture. It's an accepted fact. Like, it's neither good or bad, it's just a fact. Um, it allows students to work, travel, intern, or take a few courses if needed or desired. My personal opinion is that a break is absolutely necessary. If we take the case of McGill specifically, though, does it need to be four consecutive months? Maybe not, but because of all the current economic pressures beyond student jobs and travel, it seems impossible that school districts or whatever authority is technically in charge will reform this prolonged break anytime soon, particularly for older students for whom a summer slide, so that's the loss of um, things they learn during the year, is less of a concern. Moreover, the climate crisis doesn't improve the heat situation in cities and aging school buildings, making teaching and learning during the summer still as uncomfortable as it was before. Well, that's it for me. That was Campus Under the Sun. See you next time to discuss the mechanism behind McGill's summer term more specifically. Till next time, enjoy the sun.